Good morning. Look at this. Thank you, Jeff. Dan gets his own podium. Not me. I picked the biggest guy on stage and say, you get that for me. Um, we got a picture on the screen, or we will have. There it is. This is Caitlin, and Ryan and I recently met Caitlin on a trip to Google Images. And what Caitlin's doing here is she is trying to find her birth parents. So she's been adopted. She's been raised uh, by someone else. And if you look at, at Caitlin, she's smiling. She seems happy, um, seems healthy, well-groomed. Um, she's not looking for her birth parents because something tragic has happened with her adopted parents. That's not it. Her adopted parents might be great, and her birth parents might be awful, and she knows that full well going into this search. But what she's displaying is the same thing that's in all of us, ingrained in all of us, in the fiber of all of us, that we all have this longing, this need to find out where we came from. It's inborn in us. I think of college. Um, I went to a small school, and there were Far fewer females than males, so it made dating difficult. Because if you went after a girl, there were four or five guys going after that same girl, so you had to come with some credentials. And so I'd go up to the girl, and I'd say, I, I play on the sports teams. And she'd say, well, John plays the drums. So I'd have to say something else. I'd say, well, uh, Dean's List, I make good grades. She'd say, John's dad's rich. So you had to keep having these things. I had a trump card in college, and I figured this out early on. My trump card was this. I'm half Australian. My dad's from Australia. And so I'd go to the girl, and I'd say that. I'd be like... Is John half Australian? I am. And a glaze would go over her eyes, and she'd quit seeing scrawny me, and she'd start seeing, like, Hugh Jackman or Keith Urban. And I got girls this way. It was amazing. And I used it every year until my senior year. And what happened my senior year is the basketball coach went and recruited, and he came back from this big recruiting trip, and he had with him two guys from Australia. Uh-oh. <laughs> Hand in the cookie jar. Um, one of the, the Aussies found me uh, at lunch early on when he first got to school, and he came up, and he had heard about me, I guess, kindred brothers or whatever, and he's like, hey, mate, how you doing? And in my head, I thought, crikey. <laughs> the problem is, if I said it out loud, I would have said, crikey, because I'm not Australian. So he said, uh, what's your favorite part about Australia? Well, I only knew two parts, the place where my dad was born and the outback. I knew I couldn't say the outback. That would give me away. And so I was trying to think of things I saw when the Australian, when the, uh, the Olympics were in Australia and trying to like regurgitate something like that. And I was like, oh, you know, I like the beach. <laughs> and he's like, uh, do you have family there? And I was like, I actually don't know. I'll have to call my dad and ask. And he's like, you don't know. He's like, well, what do you like to do when you go there? And then I had to say this. Oh, I, I've never been. And he kind of looked at me and was like, yeah, he's a poser. He's not a real Australian. And, and when that happened, I remember the feeling of having my past become wobbly. It shook me in the present, and it upset my future a bit. Now, it was a little deal. It wasn't, like, traumatic or anything. But that's kind of what it's like as a, as a Christ follower in our faith. If we don't look at the past with assurance, then it ends up making our present a bit wobbly and shakes our future as well. And so that's why today we're going to talk about our origins. We're going to go on a hunt for our origins, also because I didn't know what to speak on. And so I was like, I'm just going to open the Bible and read, and I'm also very lazy. So I stopped at verse 1, Genesis 1.1. If you have a pew Bible, you'll find it at page 1. If you have your own Bible, then I have some front matter stuff. It'll be in the first five or six pages. But we all know this verse, and this verse is this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And wouldn't you leave it to the Bible to have the first verse be just a tremendously scattering verse? 
Like if that first verse, as Ryan said, is God is love, or for God so loved the world, everyone put their hands and say, yeah, we love that. But this verse is the verse that causes so many people to walk away from Christianity or never walk into it. They hear the gospel, they hear the message, they kind of like this Jesus guy, and then they get to this verse, they say, nope, that'll put me on the outs with all my scientific friends. I can't have that. Like, I'll believe he did some stuff for me, I'll believe he loved me, but that he created all this? I'm not sure. And even with Christians, within our faith, uh, a lot of people get, get kind of squeamish when someone talks about this, because it's like, I can't go share the gospel, because if I say something like this, they're going to think I'm adult, and my friends are smart, you know, and this is not smart. Well, the Bible talks of that attitude, and it does so in Romans. And probably the best gospel explanation we have in Romans 1, it's funny that it talks about creation. And it does so in 1 verse 18. It says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness, of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And then it speaks of those men in verse 19. It says, Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of this world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. So they are without excuse. So what that, that section is saying is that God put some kind of compass in us, some kind of thing in us, some kind of navigational tool in us, that while we walk on this earth, we search for God. We saw it in the testimony there before the bathroom. She said, I made this uh, resolution to walk with God. I don't know where it came from. I do. It came from God putting something inside you that makes you seek him for whatever reason. Now, a lot of us try and run from that as soon as we find the truth, or a lot of us try and kind of avoid that, but it's put in all of us. The verse tells us that. And then it also says that we know from the things that have been created. And one way we know this is because we look around the world. And if right now I had, uh, we passed this mic around, and I said, hey, name one attribute of God, we'd probably go 40 or 50 attributes deep before we said this one, and it's a beautiful attribute. It's that God himself is beautiful. And we see this in the world. You've all looked out over a sunset and said, wow or at a waterfall and said, wow. Wow always has an object. So if you go look at those paintings at the back of the room about creation, and you look at them and you really like them and you say, wow, you're not complimenting the painting itself because it didn't form itself. You're complimenting the painter, the person who painted that, the artist. If I go and I watch the Heat play and LeBron does something sick and I say, wow, I'm complimenting LeBron's game, what he did, the shot he just hit. Wow always takes an object. But it's not only in the beauty, it's also in the purposefulness this creation. I want you to do something right now. I want you to think about breathing. In and out. How many times this morning have you thought about breathing up until the point where I told you to? Zero. Because the body just sort of breathes on its own. It's something we need to stay alive, so God wired us up to where it would just happen. I've never been scared. I've been scared of the dark, and I didn't want to go to bed when I was a kid. I've been scared of monsters. I've been scared of burglars. I've been scared of all sorts of things going to bed, but I've never once been scared my body might just stop breathing. It's not something I'm fearful of because the way God wired me up. And we can look at bigger things besides just the human body and all that it does. We can look at the sun. If the sun were miles closer, we'd all be in an inferno. We'd burn up. If it was miles further away, we'd all be frozen. Why am I standing on this stage? There are planets where if I stood like this, I would float off into orbit and die. You say, well, that's gravity. It's scientific. But the thing we have to realize is that all science, if you find a true scientific fact, all it is is a truth about God the way he wired things up, the way he created it. And so if we keep looking, 
what happens is it's, it's apparent to us, it's inborn in us, and then he declares it uh, through nature. He declares the gospel in nature so we can see it. But it says this in 21, For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations. And their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory for the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds, four-footed animals, crawling creatures. So what man does is it looks at nature and it makes this choice that it's a mock choice. It's a choice we don't have to make. We say we have to choose creation or creator. And the reason we choose creation is we can't leave this earth. We can't leave this universe. We're always going to be in it. And so it makes sense to cut the ties to God. And God is separate from creation. And that if tomorrow the earth exploded and ended, which the Bible, don't worry, it tells us that's not going to be the way it goes. But if it did, it just ceased to be, God would go on. Because he's separate. But he's connected in the fact that he made it all and he governs it all. He's sovereign over all of it. But we tried to cut this cord. And what this has created is what I call origin trauma. Living under a false origin. I was thinking of an example of this and what I came up with was my family, our old family vacations. We'd go to a place, and at this place we'd go to, there's a kids' program. So it was great for my parents. They could drop the kids off, and we'd have programs and singing and crafts and games and all this stuff going on. And they could go kind of have a cool vacation or get some time away from us too. And I remember my my older sister and me, we didn't really like my younger sister for a a good span of time. And we practiced psychological warfare on her. And I remember on one of those vacations, we went around and told everyone in the little kids' unit, you know, in the kids area, that she wasn't our sister, that she was adopted from China. And then we told her that she was adopted from China, and she wept. She was distraught. She was so sad. And the thing is, she wasn't sad about adoption. Adoption's beautiful. She was sick. She didn't even understand adoption. It wasn't against adoption. And it wasn't against China. If she had been from China, she probably would have thought it was cool. It was against living under this falsehood. Living with a false origin. That's what shook her. And if you inverse that, if you reverse that, that's what goes on in our world today. It'd be like that same uh, vacation if our sister came up to my older sister and me and she said, I'm not in your family. I'm adopted from China. We said, no, you're not. We saw our mother bury you for nine months. We were at the hospital when you were born. We saw you. We held you as a baby. And she refused it. No, I'm adopted from China. And she lived under that her whole life, not taking what she could have for this other thing, this false thing. And that's what we do. People have chosen to live life under the oppressive yoke of false origins. And you say, well, why would anyone do that? The Bible says it. God declares it in nature. Christians are supposed to go around telling them, why do people do this? Our answer comes in Hebrews 11. And and in this, we're we're seeing that creation and the gospel are linked together. But Hebrews 11.1 says this. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. If anyone ever says, what does faith mean? Point them there. 11.1. And then it goes on in two, and it says, For by it, or by faith, the men of old gained approval. And then verse three, it says this, By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. It's a faith issue. Not believing in creation, and not being able to believe in creation, not believing that God could do it, it's a faith issue. And so you hear Christians say, well, I believe in the gospel, but I don't believe in creation. Well, you got a faith dilemma on your hands because it's the same thing. It'd be like if I was in that gym and I was perfecting the art of throwing a baseball. I was throwing a baseball over and over, throwing a baseball, throwing a baseball, and I got good. I could hit a target from, you know, 60 feet away just like a pitcher. I could, I could hit that target, hit that target, and then someone put a softball in my hand. I wouldn't just melt away and say, I don't know what to do. Oh, no, I don't know. What do I? No, I'd throw the softball. 
And it'd be a little bit different, but it's the same mechanism. And in this faith with the gospel and creation, it's the same faith mechanism that's going on here. It's kind of the same ability that God puts inside us. And some point, as people of God, we need to look around and we need to say, the God who saves is the very same God who makes. And the faith required of salvation is of the same ilk of the faith required for creation. And the takeaway from this whole little introduction is simply this. We're not going to be able to go on with what I'm talking about unless you can sit there and say this. God made all of this. God made it. And details-wise, I mean, you could go crazy with the details. There are some of us out here who believe the earth is very, very old. And it's millions of years old, and in Genesis there was some gap that occurred when, when God created people, and there was this gap where he made everything, and then he waited for man to come. And then there's some of us who believe that the earth is very young, 6,000 to 10,000 years old, and the Genesis account, there's no gap. God just kind of made everything. There it is. And, and both of those views are great. As long as at the base of both of them, they're based in faith, and the person was willing to say that God intelligently, purposefully designed all of this, each to its own kind. I mean, there are some secondary issues within that. You can go on all day, but there's secondary issue. The primary issue is the faith. That's what you've got to get right. You can study science all day to help supplement your faith, but ultimately it's the faith, and you have to have faith that that's God's science. And so what this means for us, that God made this, is that we can rejoice. Some of you like being outdoors. You like taking walks. You like the trees. That's God's. Go take a walk today and say, thank you, Lord. This is great. People were posting pictures on Facebook uh, of, like, icicles after the ice storm. I'm like, this ugly ice storm, how could you even like that? And then they post pictures of icicles, and you look at it, and you're like, oh, yeah, that's kind of neat. It's like prisms of color coming out of that. That's, wow. Some of you like animals. Confession, I don't. I don't hit them, but I don't like them. But I'm growing in this. My, my in-laws, they have a dog, and they treat it like a kid. And so I go and visit my in-laws, and I can't be mean to the dog. Like, I can't, you know, I have to pet it and like, oh, hey, buddy. And this dog knows he's got me because sometimes we're in the room alone, and this has really happened in the last couple months. And he'll look at me, just me and him, and he winks. Like, smart dog. He's like, your, your in-laws, you can't do anything, buster. I'm starting to like animals more, and if you like animals, that's great. God put them here for us. Water tastes good. We need it. Rejoice in that. Air, you're breathing it right now because God put it in the room for us. He put it on the earth for us. But what I want to talk about with the rest of our time is the fact that God made something else. He made you. And I should be able to say that statement and we just close in prayer and go home. God made you. We're going to look at Genesis 1, 26. And what's going on in Genesis 1, 26, the rest of the book up to 26, God was getting everything ready. He was doing like a cosmic checklist. He was saying, what do they need? They need air. They need water. They need a place to live. They need a job to do because they don't want to just sit there bored. I mean, they need to give them something to do as well. He had it all ready, and he was ready to bring man into the picture. That's where we are at Genesis 26. It's like God prepared a place for us. He was preparing a place for us. And once he had already in 26, he says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And we have to stop there and say, The Bible says there's one God, but then this verse says, Let us. So who's this us? And there's a couple of viewpoints in that. One viewpoint is that God got together with all the angels and said, Let's make man. And I think you can get there. I think that's okay. I think a better viewpoint is that it's the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, getting together, pouring out their attributes into man, their distinct attributes, one God with distinct attributes, pouring that into man. But either way you look at it, you know what? 
There's no R when they made the, the horse. They didn't say, let us make the horse. Let us make the trees. It's like a collaborative effort when it comes to man. It was special. There's something unique about that. And the other part of that that's unique is that this image and likeness, again, that didn't happen, rock in our image. No, that was never said. Only for man, only for woman was that said. So we need to look at what that means, to be made in God's image and likeness, especially in light of the gospel. And one thing it could mean, and it does mean, is that we have the ability to think and to use our minds. If you look at the Genesis account, you can read it on your own later, God was thoughtful, he was tactical, he had a plan. So you should too. Faith isn't just this blind leap. It's not this stupid thing. It's a rational, reasonable thing because God put a rational, reasonable mind inside us. And as Christians too, sometimes we just do stuff and it's like ludicrous the way we do it. Think. We can use our minds and when we do that, we're honoring the God who put our minds in us. But it's not the only thing. Some people say this is what it means and that's it. It's not the only thing. And the reason I say that is because some people are born without fully functional minds. Some people can't think. Are they less in God's image than people who are smart? That's going to make a shaky worldview if you believe that. And that's going to make you a cruel person if you believe that. doesn't matter if you're Einstein or Gump, still in God's image. Second, language. The Bible repeats this several times that God spoke. God said, let there be light. God spoke this into creation. Some people say, well, that's metaphor. I don't think it's metaphor. I think God actually spoke these things into being. I think it was lyrical and poetic. I think he was like the original Shakespeare. It, it, maybe it rhymed, maybe it didn't, but it was beautiful and rich. He might have sang it. God talks about singing. Where did that come from? Well, I think it came from here. He sang creation into being. And, and some people get on these secondary issues. They get all crazy. And they say, well, what language did he speak? I have a theory. You can punt it, and I'll probably get made fun of in heaven if I ever tell anyone up there this. But I think the theory is it's every language that's ever been on earth all wound up into one. So when Babel came, God had this God language, and he just split it into chunks. Here's English, here's your German, here's this, here's that. And all our languages are incomplete if you look at that. And then what happens in Revelation 7-9, there's a whole host of people from every tongue, tribe, and nation, and they're singing praises to God. How do we know they're every tongue unless they're singing in their own language? And if they're all singing the same song to the same God, how does that make any sense? If they, it would just be chaos and our God's a God of order. So I think all those languages, when put together, and that dead languages and languages yet to come, intermingle around the throne of God and make sense in this special God language. You say, well, that doesn't make any sense. English and like Greek, they're like so different. I, I think it's like looking at pieces of a jigsaw puzzle. You look at them, it doesn't make any sense what it is, but you put the whole jigsaw puzzle together and all of a sudden, oh, it's a hot air balloon. It's a carnival ride, and I get it when you put it all together. I think that's the language we spoke, but I don't know, but I will say this, he spoke. And the reason I say that is because we speak. Our language is part of our image-bearing of God. Another part is our relationship-seeking, or our love. The fact that us, let us make man, inbred in us this relational aspect. Everyone in this room yearns for a relationship. You probably wouldn't be here otherwise. You're seeking families, you're seeking spouses, you're seeking friendships. Even hermits, what do they do? They live all alone, they shut everything off. What do they get? They get a dog and treat it like a human. Or they get a bird, or they get a cat. They pretend there's a human because they yearn for a relationship. I remember finding this out as a six-year-old. I didn't have any brothers. I had a bunk bed. I slept on the top bunk, and it made me so sad that no one slept on the bottom bunk. And so my imaginary friend, Leroy, started sleeping on the bottom bunk for like two years. You can ask my mom about this. Leroy slept there, and it wasn't, it wasn't that I was just this absurd, weird little kid. You know what it was? 
I was in the image of God. I yearn for relationship. Another thing this means is that we can create and we can make. We can make things. If you read Genesis again, the whole account, it's God making, it's breathing, it's creating. God is the great engineer. He's the first engineer. And so when you go and you make things, that's the reason why Legos is a multi-million corporation is because we're made in God's image. Next time you walk in on a kid and he's playing with Legos, you ask him, why are you playing with Legos? He'll say, I don't know. I'll say, I do. You're in the image of God. You're just mimicking what God did in Genesis. So when you write, when you, when you make music, when you sing, when you build a house, when you do these things, a little bit of your godness that he put inside of you is coming out. It's a beautiful thing. It's because of God. Another thing is the soul or the spirit. You could call it what you will, but this eternal thing that's put inside of us that will never fade, that's everlasting. Our body's fading. It's a, it's a broken vessel. It's an earthen vessel. It's a stretched out tent. The body's going to go, but the soul's going to remain. And someday the soul's going to be sewed to a new body. But the soul's everlasting. That's what separates us from bears. Okay, the soul. I wrote down also the thumbs. Because if bears had thumbs, we'd be in trouble. But they don't. And they also don't have souls. We don't know when bears die what's going to happen to the bear. We're not told that. But we know when humans die, their soul goes on. That's part of being in the image. So if you take all those things and some other things and, and weave them together, you'll start to have a picture of what being in the image of God is. But the biggest thing that being in the image of God is is this. It means that we reflect God. That's the biggest part of it. We're an image bearer. Bearing God's image matters most because it's God's image we're bearing. I know that sounds like the most obvious statement in the world, but it's important for us to to know that and to remind ourselves that. It's not because of us, the objects of this bearing. It's because of the subject. It's because of him, the great he, the I am. God is valuable, worthwhile, and purposeful. And since we are made in his image, guess what? We are valuable, worthwhile, and purposeful. Again, not because of us, but because of him. It's like when Michael Jackson died. They auctioned off all his stuff. And that nasty, stupid, sequined glove that he wore, the one, whoo, you know the thing, went for $300,000. You're like, that glove is gross. I mean, you know what he used it for. And it was sweaty and, come on. But that glove had value because it was Michael Jackson's glove. Glove wasn't good for keeping someone warm. It wasn't good for working. It was good because Michael Jackson. In the same way, we are relics of God on this earth. We are only good and purposeful because God is. We're kind of like that glove. John Calvin said it this way. In speaking of the image of God, John Calvin, great theologian, said this, I believe rightly that we're like a mirror that reflects something of God into the earth. That God is a loving God, and when we love, we're showing a little bit of what God's like. That God is a forgiving God, and when we forgive those who sin against us, we're showing a little bit of God forth into the earth. That's being an image bearer. So when you have joy, you share that joy. When you laugh at the right things. When we laugh in here, that can be great. That can be a beautiful thing and a way to reflect God. When we show love to one another, when we forgive, when we're merciful, when we make things, we reflect God and we're bearing his image. And you come to verse 27, it says this, it reiterates it. God created man in his own image, just in case you didn't get it. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The problem with feminist movement is that they say that they deserve rights because they're women and they have the loudest bullhorn and they have the best posters or whatever. The reason they deserve rights is because God values them. Man and women were made distinct. They're different. It's a different gender. And they're both valued by God. Different roles. God wants us in the Bible. He talks about different roles for each. 
but they're valued. And then 28, I love this. This is easy to skim right through. The first three words of this verse is this. God blessed them. Like he needed to bless us. What more could we ask for? He gave us food. He gave us shelter. He gave us a purpose. He gave and he gave and he gave and he gave and he gave. And then he said, I'm not done. I also bless you. I want you to know I'm for you. I want you to know I love you. I want you to know I'm going to be there for you. I want you to know I want the best for you. I bless you. So we are made by God in his image like the reflection of a mirror. We're provided for, given a job to do. And then a couple chapters later, we're not going to look at it. Genesis 3, mankind fell and the distortion set in. This is like a carnival mirror. Like we're supposed to be this pure reflection, like a pristine, clean mirror, looking and it's seen just a microcosm of what God is in each of our lives. And it became distorted like those mirrors that stretch you out of the carnival, make you tall and skinny or make you wavy or make you short and fat. For some of us, that's just a mirror. But that's okay. That's beside the point. Still image of God. But it's like a carnival mirror. And these things that make us image bearers that we talked about, like our minds, we begin to use our mind to think up ways to dismiss God with our theories and our philosophies and everything else we have going on. We, our creativity, instead of building up a culture for God, we begin to build things to divert from God. Our language, instead of praising him and singing praises and writing poems and, and reflecting him through that, we begin to use it to curse him. We teamed up with God's enemy to wage war on him. And here's the thing, many of us hear that, you, I mean, you fell. Many of us hear that, and consciously or subconsciously, we, we repeat it. I'm a sinner, I'm a failure, uh, I, I fell, I'm a cracked pot, I'm a broken vessel. Uh, and all of that's doctrinally sound. All that is very true. But you shouldn't just say that. Because equally doctrinally sound is this fact. I am made by and blessed by God as an image of God. That's doctrinal too. Some people live just so beat up, they never do a thing. They just feel worthless. And then we hit them with the doctrine of the fall, and we tell them, you're worthless, you're worthless, you're worthless. But you're also God's. So you're not worthless. Because that fact alone makes you worthwhile. It means something. And the reason I can say it means something is because it's not revoked after the fall. The fall happened in Genesis 3. In Genesis 5, in talking about man, the Bible says that man was made in God's image and blessed by God. It doesn't say man was made, man, man used to be made, man, man was made and now it's made by someone else, it's outsourced. It says man's still made by God. In Genesis 12, Abraham, a fallen man, is blessed by God. In Genesis, after the fall, over 75 times, God looks at man, you know what he says? He doesn't say you're fallen, he doesn't say you're a sinner, he doesn't say you're broken, you know what he says? Bless you. I bless you. I'm not revoking that. Because what we need to realize is that we are an image of God because who he is not because of how we fail. We're an image of God because of him. Psalm 139 says that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. You ever repeat that to yourself? Next time you get in trouble, next time you're feeling bad, next time you're feeling ashamed, yeah, we need to confess, we need to repent, but we also need to utter that. You know what? I'm sort of a mess up, but you know what else? I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Remarkably made. Ephesians 2.10 says that we are God's workmanship. Another word for workmanship is masterpiece. So in the museum of God, you walk past the trees and you walk, watch, walk past you know, the, the brooks and the, the beautiful cosmos and the sunsets, and he's got the center room, the room that people in heaven line up for, and it's you. You're the Mona Lisa, the masterpiece. And this means three things for us. It means three things. And the first of these three things is this. We matter. 
Life is sacred because God is sacred, not because of us, but because of God. We matter, and that's every life. That's born and unborn. And a lot of times Christians get this. That's why we fight abortion so hard. The world doesn't understand why Christians fight abortion. It's just an object. It's not that big a deal. It's a social choice. It's the, it's the woman's body. They say all this, and, and Christians say, that is the image of God. God created that. That's a masterpiece, that thing there. It's not because the baby has any inherent value to society. It's not like it's going to come out and start making speeches or build something or cure cancer. It's just a baby, but we get that it's God's baby that he made, that he created. We get that. It's still an image. But this is where we miss it. You know whose life also matters? The mother committing the abortion. Still an image. A lot of times, whatever our pet sin is, whether it's homosexuality or gossip or slander, or whatever it is, drunkenness, whatever our pet sin is, those people aren't images of God anymore. Ugh, look at them. And we outcast them. We push them away. We hate on them. And yeah, some of those people are living the distortion. They're image bearers, and they're not doing a very good job. Some of them are image bearers, and they don't even know they're image bearers. We're supposed to tell them. We're supposed to let them know that. And yes, we're supposed to hate sin, and we're supposed to live by conviction. We're supposed to make the world a better place that resembles heaven more than it did the day we set foot on it. Every day, building it up, making it a little better. And that's true. But we also have to realize that we're all image bearers, and we reflect God most accurately when we make all life matter. James 3.9 talks about us using our tongues to curse men, and then it follows it up with this. You use your tongue to curse men, and then it reminds you, that man is the likeness of God. That man might be worthy of cursing. That man might be the worst guy. That man might have ripped me off. That man might have taken my money. That man might have done a lot of things to me. But before I curse him, I need to remind myself, image of God. See, we all have this stamp on our foot. How good you are, how bad you are, we all have the same stamp, and it says, image of God, made by God. You see those made by China Stickers on a lot of stuff, on like toys or whatever. Made by God. Image of God. Look at that baby's foot, or you look at that mother who's contemplating killing that baby's foot. Image of God. Made by God. Maybe a better illustration of this is a man named Bob Goff. We went to a conference recently, and Bob Goff was speaking. He's an attorney in California. He's also the consul of Uganda. And he's a humanitarian. And so in looking at Uganda, he noticed this, that there was a bunch of witch doctors in Uganda. And the witch doctors weren't like fun, skipping around monkeys like Rafiki and Lion King. The witch doctors were evil. And why I say they're evil is because they're practicing child sacrifice. So what the witch doctor does, he's kind of like the mayor of the town. If someone in the town gets sick, you know what he does? He finds a boy, some little boy in the town, and kills him. And says, this will ward off sickness. A neighboring tribe wants to have a war with them. They say, no, no, no. We'll sacrifice a child to prevent that war. Hundreds of hundreds of children mutilated. And the way they kill them, I won't even go into it. Awful, tragic, long, grueling deaths. Painful, scary. So Bob Goff goes over there and he finds a guy who's killed hundreds. He's the worst of the worst. And a witch doctor's never been prosecuted in Uganda. So this was a new thing. And he takes that guy to jail. He takes him, takes him to the court, conviction. Guy goes to jail. And Bob Goff starts feeling bad because he's a humanitarian. He says, hey, the court proceedings were in a different language. Some of it was in a different language. and I, As a humanitarian, this guy is the face of evil, worst person I've ever seen, killed hundreds of little boys, but he needs to know what's going on. He needs to know why the court found him guilty, and he needs to know that he's going to spend the rest of his life till he dies, which is going to be soon, in this hole. 
So he goes to the prison, and the prison's like not a bunk bed with a nice TV. You know, it is a place where men go to die, evil men. And he sits across from this evil, evil man. And before he can even tell him about the court proceedings, this evil man looks at him, this guy who's killed, this soulless guy, it seems like, looks at him and goes, I know what I did was wrong. I need to be forgiven. Who's going to forgive me? And Bob Goff looks at him and he says, well, let me tell you a little bit about Jesus. And Bob Goff tells the guy about Jesus, and there in that prison cell, the man accepts Christ. And then two weeks later, the guy holds a revival in the prison, a place the gospel has never been. He told all these other heinous criminals about Jesus Christ. And you know what Bob Goff said in his talk? He said he was sharing Christ with this guy, and the guy said, I want to accept Jesus. I want to follow Jesus. I want to give my life to Jesus. This is what Bob Goff said. I didn't want him to. Aren't we glad that Christ doesn't withhold the grace we don't deserve the way we withhold it from others? We look at others and say, oh, they're not image of God. They're not image of God. They're not image of God. The same people that God looks at and says, yep, they're my image. If God looked at us that way. The thing we've got to realize is we're all distorted. We're all distortions. We're not the way we were meant to be. We're not the pure image we were meant to be. But that makes, means we're in it together. And that means the life matters. Even the lives we may not like so much. I look around the world, there's a lot of lives I don't like. But can I realize they got the same stamp on their foot and love them anyway? That's worldview shattering if you get that. It'll change the way you do mission. Isn't that what missions is? It's going to people who maybe aren't like us, maybe don't believe like us, maybe don't behave like us, and showing them the stamp on their foot. <laughs> Say, no, you're his too. Second thing about this is, that God's order matters. We're losing this in our churches. We're losing this in our society. The first thing we've got to set in place in reading Genesis, the Genesis 1 account is very clear that God is creator. And the reason why that's important is you can hardly read your Bible if you don't have that mindset. Because some of you are doing the read through the Bible in the year plan. Anyone doing that? Read through the Bible in the year, and it tells you, like, what to read, and you go through that passage. Some of you are doing that. You're landing right now in Leviticus, and there's some rough stuff. You've been through some rough stuff, and you got some rough stuff coming. And what I mean by rough stuff is passages where God's killing people. They sin, and God, who is love, is killing them. He's taking their life. And a whole swath of people say, I cannot believe in God because I read this passage, or this passage, and this passage. And you look up those passages, and it's where God's killing people, or blowing up cities because of their sin. Like whole people groups wiped out because of God. And when I hear people say that, I want to agree with them, but then I think it through, and it's the most irrational thing I can think of. It's irrational in this way. If one of you came up to me after this message and you said, hey, man, my car's broken. I need to borrow yours. Can I borrow your car? I might not want to, but I give you the keys. I say, you can take my car. Go on. Take my car. Everyone around would think, oh, man, that Matt, what a great guy. He's just loaning his car out. And then if I wait five, six days and I call you up and I say, hey, my wife needs me to run some errands. I got to take a trip. I got to do this or that. I need my car back. And you just cussed me out. And you told all your friends about it and all your friends cussed me out and everyone doesn't want anything to do with that Matt. There'd be a problem with that logic. Because that car is titled to me. I paid for that car. That car is mine. So when God takes a life, what we have to realize in the Old Testament or even now, when God takes a life, it's his to take. All life is his. It can redeem how you view the scripture because that person who he took, it was grace enough that he even had one breath, much less, much less however many breaths he had. I've been on this earth 29 years. If he takes me right now, it wasn't an untimely death. It was the perfectly timed death because it's God's. Life's his. He's the creator. 
And we see that we've ripped that role out of him. We don't look at him as creator. And we see that how we distort sex or, or gender. Some of the animalistic philosophies we have going on just proves that the order is off. And the order set forth in Genesis, the Genesis 1 account, is simple. It is God on top, creator. And then right under God is us, his image bearers. And then under that is everything else. And as his image bearers, we're supposed to take everything else and we're supposed to create and make and, and produce a culture. I love this about the Bible. Uh, Genesis 3 it puts Adam and Eve in a garden. Garden of Eden. You've all heard of that. Big green sign. Garden of Eden, population 2. And then when Jesus gives a parable, or then at the end of the book in Revelation, you know what it's talking about? It's not talking about a garden party of two. It's talking about a city. We're supposed to build and grow and go out and let other people know, hey, we're made by God. We're gods. Let's build this thing. Let's grow. Let's expand. But the reason we can't do that is because the order's off. And one way that we err is we err to make ourselves little gods. We just try and take that top spot. That's what, that's what Adam and Eve did, right? They got tired of their role and wanted to take that role. Well, that's not your role. You're supposed to be in the middle. Quit trying to take the top spot. But we all do it. Listen to pop music in the last 20 years, and you'll hear this repeated and repeated and repeated. If it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. You can go your own way. The lyrics say it, and they echo what society says. That we're trying to become our little gods with our own little morals. It, whatever you want to do, it's up to you. If you think that's wrong, and no one else, that's fine. That's wrong. If you think it's right, that's fine. That's right. Just go your own way. Follow your dream. Follow your heart. You're making yourself your own little God. And the other way we err is to remove God altogether and merge the bottom two categories, where we and the animals just become one. We're just all in this together. We're all just kind of animals. And this is where racism comes in. I mean, that's the, the beginning of racism right there. It's because, hey, we're all just animals. My breed of animals just happens to be a little bit better than that breed of animal. Really, we're the same animal. You think of the Holocaust. You read about the Holocaust. A lot of the guys, they just seem so evil and rotten, you know, killing all these Jews. But if you look at the backstory of some of these soldiers, these German soldiers who were doing that, you know what they were right before the war? Like, weeks before they went to war, you know what they were? They're like mailmen. They're out kicking a soccer ball with their kids. They were taking walks with their wife. They were celebrating anniversaries. They were going to church. So how then do they kill millions of people in the most horrific ways? Those people weren't people. They were just a lesser breed of animal. The Jews weren't people anymore. And on a lesser scale, we do that in our society. That's, that's where abortion comes in. That's why people don't feel like that's wrong, because it's just, eh, we're animals. We got the order off. And we need to find our identity where God placed us, right there in the middle, underneath him as his image bearer, and then we need to go out and make things reflect him through building culture and through doing things for him. Think about your own life. How much trouble has your life seen simply by misplacing your identity? Our identity is supposed to be in Christ where God created us to be in the middle. Think of where we put our identity. We put it in our sexuality. We put it in our looks. We put it in the longevity of trying to increase our life. We put it in our money. Here's the one I put it in, what other people think. Other people become little gods to me. I don't care so much about what that God thinks. I care about what these little gods think. And so if they tell me, even though I'm working for God, I'm doing something for God, they tell me, I don't like that. I'll say, oh, you're right. <laughs> Let me get in line with what you think. What other people think. But it, if we get that order correct, we get that identity right, that noise will fade. And the way we make that fade is just reminding ourselves, hey, God made me. 
The next time someone makes you feel bad and you just feel crummy and your day's going terrible, maybe that's something you need to remind yourself of. God made me. He values me. God. That might make some of the mess go away. Revisiting that stamp on the bottom of your foot. The third reason this means anything is because it shows there's a purpose to all. And the purpose of, of this whole creation thing is that creation is linked intrinsically to the gospel. And right now, our, our roles in this life is, are to earn, to create, to love, to build a city on a hill that points to and reflects our maker. And that's how God designed it. He looked at it in Genesis 1.31, and God saw all that he had made, and behold, this is what God said about it. Very good. I made this well. This is great. And then in Genesis 3, very bad entered the picture, and very bad entered the heart's of every human being to ever walk the earth. And we took what was good, enjoyable, safe, and perfect, and we made a pitiful exchange. Adam came up, and he chose the distortion over God. And Adam did this after being made, after being cared for, and after being blessed. And here's what I want to realize about creation and why this links to the gospel. This happened in all of our hearts, and that could have been it. This should have been the end. Man falls, that's it. Because that cross above us right there that represents where Jesus hung for us, you know what happens if God doesn't send Jesus to God? He's still God. We're still his. That stamp doesn't wear off. We would still be God's. He still would make us. He still would own life. He still had created. He's creator no matter what. That could have been it. He didn't have to do a thing. His, his position was secure at the top. He was good to go as God. But because he's love, he decided at that moment that creation wasn't finished. And he decided to create a way back for us to return to him and his provision and his full blessing that he set forth in Genesis. And so he sent the second Adam and Jesus Christ to fix what the first Adam and every Adam since has blown. Creation was complete in Genesis, if not for man's rebellion. And then when man rebelled, you know what God did in love? He said, to be continued. He stamped a little to be. It looked like it was finished. It looked like it was very good. Then it got very bad, and he said, to be continued. To be continued. And throughout epochs, people said, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? And God just said, to be continued. To be continued. To be continued. Until the time where Jesus hung on the cross and gave his life and his spirit up to the Lord. You know what he said? At that point, he said, it is finished. That's when the first creation ended. When God made a way and had completed that way in the work of Jesus Christ. And that's when it was stamped finished. And this Jesus Christ who said it is finished, he's the same one who after he resurrected from the dead, after he had conquered death, he was walking around. The disciples said, where are you going, Lord? Where are you going? Where, are you leaving? He said, yeah, I'm leaving. They said, well, how can you have anything to do? You've already conquered death. I mean, what more is there? And he says, I got one more thing to do. I got to go and prepare a place for you. I'm going to get something ready. And the reason we know that's good is because he's prepared one once in Genesis Fearfully and wonderfully, he gave us food, a place, a life, an identity, a purpose, even the weekend. He even gave us rest. He gave us extras. He gave us laughter. He gave us stuff we didn't even need just to give us a more full life. And it was all very good. And now to know that he's preparing again, we can trust that it'll be good because he's done it once. And it was very, very good because he is very, very good. See, creation and the gospel are linked. And seeing this link allows us first to value life. We can value life because all life is God's. Those like us and those unlike us. We're stamped. We got the same stamp as everyone else. We're in this together. 
Seeing creation in the gospel link will have us seek God's glory because we'll have a more full picture of who he was in Genesis, who he is presently in his provision, and we'll trust more who he's going to be in the future. You see, linking creation to the gospel will allow us more faith and hope. I look at it this way. My friend, uh, Nate, he actually goes to church here. I don't know if he's here today, but he bought this creepy van. It's a Volkswagen van from the 60s. It's awesome. But it's like the weirdest gray, flat-nosed Volkswagen hippie van. The only people who drive these vans now are either artists or murderers. Like, that's the only thing that can drive this van now. And so if someone pulled up to me in this van and said, hey, man, get in, you know what I'd say? No. No, thank you. I appreciate your beard and everything, and your van looks great, but I'm not getting in there. They'd say, why won't you get in? I'd say, because you're going to drive me to the river where bodies are easier to hide. I'm not getting in that van. But what's funny is last week I hadn't seen this van yet, and this van pulls up to the church where I'm working, and I go outside, and there's the van sitting there. And Nate's in the front seat. He goes, you want to get in? I hopped right in. Why did I hop in? Because I knew Nate's past. I knew who he was. I knew what he put his hand to. I knew what he had created. I knew how he loved his family. I knew things about Nate that allowed me to get in his front seat and just drive with him wherever he'd take me. And you know where he took me? This is great. He took me to Chick-fil-A. I sat at the promised land with Nate. And that's the picture of God, and that's how it links creation to the gospel. Because God, he's done it all. We can rest in his future goodness because of his past goodness. How good that he made a way for us. He's made everything at creation. In Revelation 21, you know what it says? He says he's going to make all things new. He's going to do it again. The first one was so good. He said, you know, i got even something better planned. And he's already begun that creation. He's begun it even now. For those of us who have given our lives to Jesus Christ, he's begun that creation on our hearts. And so God now is in the business not of stamping our feet. He stamps our feet, and we're all going to have that stamp no matter what. But the stamp he's looking for is a stamp that goes on our heart that says, Redeemed by Christ. Made by God, redeemed by Christ. Do you have that stamp? And if you, if you do have that stamp, there's still plenty to rejoice about. Because God made you. If you don't have that stamp, guess what? God still made you. And for all of us, this good God didn't just make us, but he made a way back for us. What a reminder to live your week on. He made us and he made a way back for us. He didn't have to and he did. He was God either way, but he loved us for whatever reason. So what we're going to do now is we're going to celebrate that God. We're going to celebrate him and we're going to seek for our identity by his spirit, not just in our Savior, in Jesus Christ, but also in our creator, God. And for some of us, that's going to look a lot different. I mean, we're going to sing and we're going to take communion and communion's great because it gives us a chance to reflect on how we are distorted. We're made to be the image. We distort that image, but guess what? God still sees us as his image. And he's willing to take the, the distortion and say, I, I don't need to see that. I just want to see the image of myself back in your life. Let's reset it. I think uh, the reason God made seas, have you ever tried to drink seawater? It's gross. It's got a bunch of salt in it. It's nasty. I think he made it so that he tells us in his word he can take our iniquities and chuck them into the sea. And he's, he'll do that for us during communion. We can give that to him. And for some of us, we need to celebrate his creation and realize, man, we're part of that creation. Go take a walk today. Go take a nap. He gave us rest. Some of you just need a nap. You can rejoice God by taking a nap. How good is God that he gives us that? We need to celebrate him. We're going to sing songs. We're going to pray. I mean, this is going to be a sweet time. And if you're not a member of K Bible Chapel, this is open for you. This is God's Supper. This is the Lord's Supper. This is where we reflect on Jesus Christ. So if you're a member of the household of faith, if you love Jesus Christ, take communion with us. And let's celebrate. And if you've never joined that household of faith, 
Have you never gotten your heart stamped? He's got a stamper ready. He's sitting there with it. He's saying, let's go. We'll go to Chick-fil-A. He's pulled up in his van. He's honked the horn. He says, oh, you don't know my resume? Read Genesis. It's all good. Get in. Read Romans. Man, what a good God. So before we enter that time, I'm not going to pray with us. Instead, I'm going to read Scripture. And when I read this, if you want, maybe some, some of you feel so down on yourself. Just feel like you got beat up. You feel like you're just the worst person. Close your eyes and let this soak in. For some of you, you just need to close your eyes and let this soak in because it'll give you a bigger picture of God and who God is and who you are in God and in Christ. Listen to this from Psalm 139. Verse 13 says, For you form my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. And my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were written all the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. Listen to this. If you haven't been listening, listen to this. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Right now, if we tried to think the way of the ways God is thinking of you as an individual, the thoughts God has for you, we wouldn't have time to count them. And all we're going to do in this time right now is give some of those thoughts back. Let's think on him as Ryan closes us.